I'd like to offer five observations um, that I've sketched thinking about the dysfunction of this place. So the fact that Washington is broken is obvious. The whys of how Washington is broken, I think, are different than most people believe. They're different than I believed. I, uh, as Kristen mentioned, I've done a lot of crisis and turnaround projects. And usually, if you're going into an institution that's broken, um, if, if I worked to the Washington Consulting Group, McKinsey and Company, did some strategy work on my own. Usually, you're not going into a place until it's near bankruptcy. It's being disintermediated by a new technology. There's been a merger, an acquisition. They're missing payroll. There's something fundamentally broken enough that brings a sense of urgency. And so, when the newbies arrive, you can ask the dumb rookie questions. One of the strange things about this place is, though it doesn't work. There's sort of an aura around Washington that is, well, you should still pretty much pretend that it works. And I've been reflecting a little bit on some of what that creates in terms of downstream distrust. And frankly, again, though I'm not intending to talk about the presidential race, um, because I don't think Mr. Trump is driving almost none of these changes. He isn't driving hardly any of these changes. I think he's moving the needle on a few things. I think um, the anti-trade sentiment in certain parts of the country, I actually think he's managed to accelerate by giving people categories of things there was anxiety about. But by and large, I think he's epiphenomenal of other problems. He's not causal of very many of them. That doesn't mean he's not very dangerous. I think he is. But what I want to talk about is those upstream things. But I'll make five quick observations. Um, maybe I'll name them in rapid fire, and then I'll unpack them for two minutes apiece. Uh, number one, we talk constantly about political polarization. Elites do, the media does. I actually think political polarization, while a problem, is a much, much, much smaller problem than political disengagement. I think political disengagement in the country, and I'm going to give you a few numbers that I think support this point, political disengagement is much more significant than political polarization. Number two, um, I think the decline of public trust in institutional life in America in general, but in particular the institutions of Washington, has a pretty tight correlation with how little accountability there is for the fact that the legislature doesn't fix much. And the legislature doesn't fix much because most legislative authorities don't really reside in Congress right now. The president has an I have a pen and I have a phone theory of Washington, and the truth is the bureaucratic agencies, the rulemaking processes, are much more significant legislatively, I'm going to use that as a generic concept, than actual legislation moving through the Congress. Um, third, we live at a moment in economic history that's unprecedented in the history of alphabets. So I don't think the moment we live at is the most disruptive moment in economic history, but it's darn close history nerd here. I think there are only four kinds of economies in the history of the world at the macro level. Hunter-gatherers, settled agrarian farmers, and the rise of villages. Urbanization, industrialization, mass immigration from 1870 to 1920 in the US and across the globe, in Europe at about the same time and across the globe from then on. We still obviously have this urbanization, industrialization happening in China and India today. But the rise of what we would think of as the big tool economy, and the fourth thing is whatever we're in now, we don't even have terms for it. The IT economy, the knowledge economy, maybe the service economy, really the only useful category for it is post-industrial, which means we don't know what to call it, but it's no longer that other thing. And the disruptions we're going through right now are significantly greater, I think, 
starting 25 years ago and extending by 50 to 100 years into the future in terms of how we figure out how to make sense of this, they're more significant than industrialization, but we have far less intellectual um, framing. We have, we have far fewer categories by which to think about what's happening now than they did 1870 to 1920 with the rise of progressivism. Uh, fourth, there is an important distinction between small government and limited government. And I believe zealously in both of them, but you can be an American and not agree with all of us in this room about small government. You can be a proponent of medium-sized government, medium-sized intervention in the economy, and not be un-American. You can't actually reject the idea of limited government and understand anything about what America is. And so to the degree that we allow these two terms, small government and limited government, to be conflated, we do a huge disservice to maintaining a context for debate and argument about how you pass on the meaning of America to the next generation. And that's my fifth and final point. Community and government are different things. And it turns out the next generation doesn't know that. And one of the ways you know that they don't know that is when President Obama got reelected in 2012 with the DNC running ads all over the web, taking Barney Frank's line, government is just another word for things we choose to do together, and running that to millennials around the clock across the country. No, government is not another word for the things we choose to do together. Community is. Government is the institution that has a monopoly on violence and can take your stuff and take your freedom. Government doesn't persuade you of things. Government compels you to do things. And right now, we have lost any shared sense of that. So I'll go a little bit slower through these five in a hurry, and then we'll go to Q&A and talk about what you want to talk about. But uh, to kick it off, I think political polarization is obviously a problem. Sort of tribalism in the Congress limits people's abilities to even approach a problem with a fresh sense of, what are we trying to solve here before we figure out a shirts and skins exercise of what color party jersey are you wearing? Obviously, polarization is a problem. But we all tend to live in the bubble. Um, and if you, I'm one of a handful of people, I don't know, five, six, seven people in the Senate who's never run, any, run for anything before, before being elected to the, to the Senate. Um, but by and large, DC is populated by people who are DC-centric in their worldview and in their experiences. I highly recommend Charles Murray's bubble quiz to you. Uh, if you haven't taken it yet, many of you have probably heard about it, but he, he wrote this uh, connected to a book and a half ago, um, but now he's at, uh, at his new book that's been getting so much attention about the coming apart of essentially middle class white America. He wanted to remove any racial context from the debate given some of his history with the bell curve. So he just wanted to talk directly about white populations and what's happening to them. And a lot of people have rediscovered the bubble quiz. So if you haven't, Google Charles Murray bubble quiz and take it. And you'll be stunned to find that by far the least intellectually diverse communities in America tend to be places where rich elite people live who think they're the most diverse. There are a whole bunch of zip codes on the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side and San Francisco and Washington DC that tend to understand less about America than anybody does who lives in a poor middle class town across 47 other states. And so we start with an assumption that our experience is the universal experience. The universal experience of most people is thinking pox on all your houses. They don't believe Republicans or Democrats are fixing any of the big problems. And they don't want to talk about politics because they don't trust any of you all and they don't trust any of us. And so when you think about the sort of national media narrative about, well, the world is divided into Fox and MSNBC theories of the truth, 
and how can we ever solve any problems when we can't even get together? We have no shared conceptions of reality. Do we realize that no one is watching Fox or MSNBC? Right, Fox just had an all-time record quarter, swifting from a more traditional conservatism to a more reactionary populism turns out to be a slightly larger market niche for people on late night cable TV. But even as they did it, they're hitting three million viewers a day occasionally. Think about that. Fox's audience is much larger than MSNBC and CNN combined, and yet all of them put together are barely breaking 1% of America's 320 million people. Nobody's paying attention to this. They don't, there's a reason why J-Lo has a Q rating that's 98%, and any of us in the Senate or the House are lucky in an election year if two out of three people will tell a pollster they've ever even heard of your name. Right? They, they don't look to politics as the source of meaning. That doesn't mean they don't expect the government should solve their problems, and we'll get to that. But polarization is a, a problem among elites and among politically addicted people. Most people say, we don't trust any of you, and we're checking out of this whole equation. I think that relates um, to this broader sense of declining public trust, because we don't have a way to translate the work of the federal government to 320 million people if you don't have members of Congress that are representatives who actually go home and live among the people and represent the people. I want to be clear, I have a Burkean theory, um, not a sort of delegate theory of what a job of a member of Congress or a senator is. But that doesn't change the fact that you're still supposed to be representing a place and be from that place. And we have all these people who talk like they know everything. They're omnicompetent, and they're able to solve everything, and they can make a difference in all these different areas. The reality is, here are two data points. The approval rating of Congress has been bouncing around for the last decade between 9 and 15%. And not to make my wife sound too cynical, but she says, being somebody who isn't addicted to this place and doesn't live here, who are these 9% and when can I set them straight? <laughs> How can anybody drive the rating of Congress up to 10%? And yet the incumbency re-election rate is north of 90%. How does that make any sense? Right? Name any other sector in life where everyone can think you're failing and there's almost no chance you'll be held to account. And yet the reality is the purview of the Congress right now is tiny. I believe in Schoolhouse Rock. I believe in three separate but equal branches of government, so don't hear this as Article I supremacy coming next, but I actually do think that Article I was intended by the founders to be the most democratic of the three bodies. Article I, Article II, Article III are equally important, they're co-equal, and yet you move from two-year terms, let's call it Article IA, Article IB, the Senate, uh, it doesn't have term limits, but it's a six-year term meant to foster an environment for longer deliberate, longer term, more dispassionate deliberation about the great challenges facing the country. Move to Article II, a president who's supposed to be probably the policy initiator in the national security space, but in the domestic policy space, obviously TV and the bully pulpit have changed it, but the president's job is to faithfully execute the laws He's supposed to run a unitary executive where his duty is to make sure the decisions passed by the we the people through their representatives are faithfully executed and he's less accountable democratically. Right? He's got this big, huge set of agencies that report to him or her and there's only one time in his career when he ever has a retention election. You can run once more after you've been elected and you move to the judiciary, these people have lifetime tenure. If they're going to be legislating, they should stand for election so that people have a way to express their will. 
And if you think about the waters of the US rule, we could do it with Dodd-Frank, we could do it with CFPB, we could go through lots of different sectors where it's obvious that the legislative power has been moving from the legislature into the executive. And this is not a Republican senator criticizing a Democratic president. I will happily be a senator criticizing any president of any party that wants to suck up these legislative powers. But the problems don't really originate in Article 2. The problems originate in Article 1, where a legislature wants to punt their legislative authorities to another agency so they don't have to be accountable. And so if you think about the waters of the US rule, which is this absurd rulemaking that sort of turns the entire English language on its head, <clears throat> since the uh, EPA's uh, uh, Clean Water Act in the 1970s passed something like 78 to 0 in the Senate. Why would it pass 78 to 0? Because it was a federal government trying to solve a very real federal problem, which is if you have dirty water or dirty air arriving in Pennsylvania and Ohio from a smokestack in Illinois, there are negative externalities there that need to be solved. And the families and the businesses in Pennsylvania and Ohio, they can't reach into Illinois by state government. And so they have an interstate problem that requires a federal solution. But the statute passed, the bill passed 78 to 0, because it was clearly distinguishing between inter and intrastate, and it left in-state water issues to Nebraskans. Well, we're, the we're known for football and corn and work ethic, uh, but we're also the largest cattle state in the union. And so if you've got lots and lots of cows in a feedlot, you tend to have a big manure pile. And if you have a big manure pile, uh, you're gonna have rainwater runoff from that manure pile that's gonna cause problems for somebody else's row crop down the hill. And so there are negative externalities that need to be managed there. Guess what? In Nebraska, we manage them so effectively, we don't even need our state government. We manage them by the counties and the NRDs, and the people who live on the land are the people who are wrestling with these issues next to their neighbors. And so I had a guy, a, a rancher, tell me last summer when I was doing town halls for the month of August, he said, I'm mad about the rule, but you know what I'm really mad at? I'm mad at myself, because I keep racking my brain, and no matter how hard I try, I can't remember who I voted for at the EPA. <laughs> Where is democracy in this? And so I know that I've, I've gone longer than two or three minutes each, so I'm not going to give as much detail in these last three, but let's simply say, small versus limited government is a distinction about policy debates about modern economics. Limited government is about whether or not government gives you rights or whether or not we believe the American experiment is an anthropological claim about human dignity. And government must be limited because we the people are the ones giving the government limited authorities. And our entire constitutional system is an aggressive argument against history where government's claim might makes right. And we believe that natural rights are the rights of people, and they come together to form a government to give the government limit authorities, not the other way around. And if you lose a sense of that, then you all, as historians of 1854, I guess, I'm trying to think when Ripon was the founding of the party. Um, you think about this party of limited government. We would have understand, understood the same language in 1854 that Reagan in 1960 and 62, still as, not as Republican president or Republican governor, but former Democratic labor union guy teaching GE employees. If you fail to teach the meaning of America to ne the next generation, you will lose your freedom. Because in any small or civic republic, that is the cultural issue that requires consensus well upstream from politics. And the problems in our politics are largely an echo of the decline of any such shared consensus about what America means.
And we shouldn't conflate government and America. And we need more people involved in politics who don't actually have a government-centric worldview. I believe in Tocquevillian localism. I believe what Alexis de Tocqueville saw about how religious pluralism and a culture of toleration and free speech and free assembly and free press and right of redress of grievances, what a lot of you do is an important calling in the world. I believe that that full flowering of pluralistic culture and conversation where you have to persuade people also led to economic dynamism. And even though we're going through massive structural changes, I think the only way that you can have a dynamic America again is if you don't have a government-centric worldview, well, then you have this sort of chicken and egg problem. Because if the public is more and more coming to believe that every problem must have a governmental solution, and the only people who serve in government are people who are addicted to government, these people are deformed, right? I mean, at the end of the day, if you really do think you know, every nail, every problem is a nail if you're a hammer, if you really believe government is everything, then the people who will occupy the bully pulpit won't sound like country music, they will sound like the Federal Register. This mostly needs a president, right? You mostly need someone who can incarnate a Reagan view of the world and remind people that the government isn't everything. Um, George H.W. Bush trying to do 1,000 points of light. There are a whole bunch of good, better and worse ways to do it from the executive branch, but it's really hard to do it from the legislature. But I think we have to try to have a different kind of human capital in the Congress, who are people who are more fully orbed than people who think everything is legislative. And I, I have an important responsibility serving in Article One to try to pass new good legislation and hopefully also repeal lots of outdated, old and bad, clunky legislation. But my job, my calling, is actually not to pass legislation. The oath I took is to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. And right now, we don't talk about that constitutional worldview for America. So I'll close by just flagging the thing that you said about my daughter on the ranch. I was just a dad. That wasn't a worked out strategy. So for those of you who haven't read it, if you Google me and hashtag from the ranch, um, you'll see, which is just something I made up, you'll see a bunch of newspaper stories that were written about our 14-year-old daughter who we sent off to spend the month of March um, living in a cow-calf operation in the middle of rural Nebraska. And she helped birth 245 cows over four weeks living on this ranch. And she's a 14-year-old girl, and she wanted to go because she knew that she would suffer and it'd be fun and she'd grow from it. But she want is sort of a heroic term that's better for parents to use than for governments to use. But she did, she did want to go. She knew it would be bad, but she also knew that therefore it would be great, right? It's sort of Aristotelian, short, you make middle-term decisions that'll drive short-term behaviors which will form long-term character. She sort of knows it. She wouldn't have defined it as Aristotelian energia, but she roughly understood what she was getting herself into. And because I'm a dad, my wife, we, we wanted to send her off to live on this ranch. We also wanted to interact with our daughter every day like we do, but she didn't have a lot of cell coverage and she was working her tail off. So we got in the habit where she would just text us many, many times a day. And it's amazing what a 14-year-old girl who has to don a glove to her shoulder and stick her arm all the way up a cow's butt uh, will text you. And so it turns out we got all of this hilarious stuff. And I was like, this is too good to not use. And so I just converted her texts to tweets. 
And I started tweeting out what my daughter would teach me from the ranch. One of the things I learned is the word placenta is not often used on Twitter. But <laughs> she had a really extraordinary experience. And because I was tweeting this out, a bunch of journalists started following. So don't follow. I don't mean don't follow Derek Morgan, our chief of staff. It's wonderful. We have a great team. We lead people who are working hard. But I mean, my traditional Twitter account from the governance office is traditional press releases. It's not that interesting, right? It's just a digitized social media version of a press operation. That's at SenSass. At BenSass is just me. And I'm just living life and I tweet occasionally. But I turned these things into tweets from the ranch. And a lot of journalists in DC started following and then people started writing about it. Well, here's what's interesting. And this is a good, good news point to close on. Washington may not get that the center of life isn't in Washington, but moms and dads do. Real people who live in real communities where they're trying to run small businesses and persuade people to join their church or their synagogue, when they're going to the Rotary Club, when they're on the PTA, when they're coaching Little League, they don't think that we're the center of the world, and that's the hope of America. And so for the next month, as I traveled, it's been just under a month since Corey came back from the ranch, everywhere I would go in Nebraska, nobody wants to talk about policy or politics. <laughs> they want to talk about my daughter on the ranch and how can their kid go. They're worried their kid didn't get the, get in the work ethic, and they know that's the future of the country. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.